You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scrappy Gamer. And I'm Norm. Okay, so today we will be talking about the uh, gloomy board game, This War of Mine. And as we're talking about This War of Mine, we also want to raise the topic of board games which aim to educate on a uh, difficult theme. So a quick warning, as we go through this episode, we're going to be talking about some darker themes like war, potentially other difficult themes like uh, colonialism and um, maybe even slavery. So if these themes are something you're sensitive to and don't wish to hear about, then you might, might want to sit out this this episode. Yeah, so uh, just to give a basic overview for anyone who hasn't played before, this War of Mine is set in a war-torn world in which you act as the guide to a small group of three survivors, whose goal is simply to survive and wait for rescue. The game takes place over a number of rounds, each round representing a day in the game. During setup, players will create a deck with three chapter cards situated throughout. Alongside this event deck is three objective cards. During each of the three chapters, players will aim to complete these objectives before the next chapter card is drawn for a reward, or face a punishment if they fail to do the objective. The game ends either when the final objective has been completed, or if all survivors are eliminated due to starvation, depression, illness, or being wounded. Accompanying the game is a book of scripts, with hundreds of varied events, which can be triggered at different times, and all of which tell some kind of story relevant to the survivors and the situations, usually horrors of war, they must deal with. The game board features a house whose spaces represent the different rooms in the house, as well as locations nearby which are available to scavenge during play. During setup, the house's rooms are populated with cards which can offer resources when explored or act as barriers to the rest of the house until removed. Days are split into different phases which indicate the time of day. So we have morning, day, dusk, evening, night and finally dawn. During these phases, various things happen and resources can be gained or lost and survivors' mental and physical states will be altered depending on the player's choices and random events. After the dawn phase, a new day starts and the game structure repeats until the game ends. Uh, that's a, a basic overview of the game there. Did I miss it? Yeah, I think you've done a terrific job. I, <laughs> I don't think you're missing anything off of the top of my head. I think that's exactly, yeah, exactly what I would have said as well. Before we dive into how we feel about this war of mine, very quickly for you guys, the listeners... Um, as you're already aware, if you've listened to any of our shows before, Scruffy normally does a YouTube playthrough um, that is released in tandem with the episode, so you can see how the game works in more detail. Um, he hasn't done it this episode, though, and uh, Scruffy, I was just wondering if you would be able to tell the listeners a little bit about your decision-making and why you have chosen not to do that this time. Yeah, so basically, I, I started recording the video, as I do every time, and I realised partway through this is not how the game is meant to be experienced. Like, if you were watching it, or even just for me playing it and, 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 and trying to 
present as I was playing it. It didn't work at all. Because the kind of nature of the game is this kind of immersive world where you're, you're, you're wrapped in the narrative and there's a lot of reading for a start, which is always very difficult to film. But you, you, it's meant to, I think, invoke a case, uh, a, a sense of isolation. And um, to some extent, I think it's, it's meant to move beyond a pleasant, lighthearted or even puzzly strategic experience and game and into something a little bit more personal. And it felt really weird trying to record that and upload it for an audience. I don't think much of the ethos of the game would have come across when watching me play it and reading out, oh, so blah, blah, blah. This means that you have to look at this event and the event says, oh, we discover a dead body. Oh, okay. I mean, it just felt so wrong and, and at odds with the ethos of the game, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I think um, I support your decision 100%. If you didn't feel like it was right, then it's not right. So that's absolutely fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I went ahead and, and finished a, a playthrough of the game, obviously, for for preparation for the show and, and to see if I could uh, make it to the end. I am still yet to succeed and <laughs> keep the, the survivors alive. We had another dismal end in our game. And uh, I think you played it a game too, is that right? That is correct, and um, it's another. <laughs> this is another caveat I just want to make listeners aware of. That was my first and only time playing the game, so Scruffy uh, is more experienced with this one than I am. So do take my opinions with a little bit of a pinch of salt. It's more of a first impressions than a than a analysis of the uh, of the game itself. Did you win? Did uh, did uh, did you guys survive? Oh yeah. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> You had me go in there. I've never... <laughs> I got really quite far this time. I got to like the start, the end of the second chapter. We were about to draw the third chapter card, but something happened. <laughs> yeah, it was around midway midway through the second chapter that we that we you know lost our our last survivor. Um, so so I saw you start it up. I was teaching you how to play, and 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 saw you do the first round. I remember you took a. A, a baby into your shelter, didn't you? Another mouth to feed. Just you couldn't leave them there when you were out scavenging, so you brought a baby home. Did that work out all right? No, it didn't work out all right. Um, his, but that brings up something I do want to talk about that the game I think does really well. Um, the, the game is kind of a masterclass in getting players invested emotionally in their characters and in the story, much more so you already said this is a game that's meant to be experienced rather than sort of puzzled out and, you know, and win and, and be a strategy game. Um, mm. It's definitely that as well. It's so challenging that it does... I can see people wanting to come back and just try to win, but it's not really the intention of the game. And one thing that I really enjoyed is when I found that baby, it, it really... I can see how well it was designed to because I immediately became invested. One of the things it it did is when I when I read read through the card, it said, you know, you've found this this baby. You know, you have to you don't have to bring it back. You could left it, but it wasn't right for that character to do so because they had quite a high empathy. If I were to fail my empathy check, it would have um, would have done bad things. So I took the baby, and it said, "No, you've taken a baby. You must name it." And 
wow, <laughs> that changes everything. Now oh that you name yeah. something, once you name something, you then have something to lose, you know? Yeah. And from a design point of view, that's so clever, giving the player something that they care about to lose straight away. Because that happened right at the beginning of the game. I should point out as well that resources in this war of mine are so scarce. Like, that is the kind of main antagonist of the game, I think, is not only trying to keep your people alive and free from harm and wounds and stuff, but trying to keep them just basically fed. I mean, right at the start of the game, during setup, your three characters, your three survivors, start off hungry, you know? And it's like, you start with a little bit of food, but that's only enough for one day. Then you've got to go and get more. And you can't, it's very hard to generate food. You have to go scavenging for it. That's the only real way to get it. Maybe you'll find a bit in the house, in, in a bit of furniture and stuff, but that's hard to get to. And, oh, my God, it's impossible to keep everyone alive and healthy and well. And I guess having that baby there as well, wow, that must have made decisions become at some point a, a choice between do I let the baby go hungry or do I let my survivor go hungry what do I do yeah and I was always terrified to let the baby go hungry but and I think one of the reasons why is because like I said earlier it's because I named it I was my loss aversion would have been triggered if you if you are listening you don't know about loss aversion Jeff Engelstein the designer of the Expanse, uh, amongst many other board games, and a former host of Ludology podcast, speaks about it in length. Um, he actually does a seminar on his YouTube channel, which I'll link in the description. Um, but the basic idea of loss aversion is that it feels worse to lose something than it feels good to gain something. Um, and there's a, a very basic example where uh, you know uh, people always gamble to avoid a loss rather than to gain something. So people always gamble to avoid a loss, even if it's not mathematically sensible to do so. And you can, like I said, please watch his seminar for more information because it's really, really interesting to know. And a lot of designers are aware of this, and it's the reason why you see in Euro games that people won't have things taken from them. So it's interesting to see this war of mine immediately gave me something I was afraid to lose because it wanted me invested on an emotional level it wanted me to be afraid of feeling bad when i lose that thing so it's very clever i guess that's one of the reasons the game feels so miserable is that every day you have a night raid and every night raid you lose some of your stores some of the stuff you've got in your store you have to i mean it's almost impossible to avoid it unless you've got a lot of investment in guards. I mean, I, I boarded up my house to try and make it secure and stuff and prevent that from happening, but you, you do just lose some stuff, and that's depressing. It is. It feels bad from from a player's point of view, not even in the story, from a player's point of view, it feels bad to have things taken from you. Even if you're not using them right now. Like, I, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll lose this book or this mechanical part I'm not really using, but... I might have needed that, you know. There's something really uh, innate, like you were saying, about loss and how how it makes you feel as a player to lose resources. It feels like you're taking a, a real step back, even though then scavengers come back with a big load of resources if they've had a lucky scavenge. You still just make up and just lost something. Yeah, and I and I appreciate that that that's the game's intention. The game's intention is to get you emotion invested on an emotional level rather than rather than having your normal 
gamer hat on to to just play through and try to win because you can correct me if you feel any different but i certainly got the feeling that the intention of this war of mine was to show the player the human cost of war um oh definitely I mean, there are some specific events. Like one one example is um, when I was out scavenging, uh, something happened. And whenever something happens in the game, it's like called a reality check or something. You just get a random event that you look up in the scripts. And I had this one thing where my character ooh, just just avoided a trap that was set there by another person. And it was quite a big trap. And it, it gave me the two options. You can either dismantle the trap or leave it and hope you catch something you know, some, some food. And I was desperate for food. So I left the trap. And then at the end of the uh, scavenging, you, you come back to it and it says, it resolves. It says, okay, but here's what happened. And what happened is uh, there was no animal caught or anything, no food. It was just somebody had left a note saying, thanks for that. You nearly made my, uh, whoever, someone's name, lose their leg, you jerk. Wow. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Yeah, that's that's something that could have happened and might have happened in actual real life. Like it's a decision that you know you don't think you'd ever make, but even within a game, you make that decision. You know, oh, it's fucking horrible. It's horrific. It it really is horrific. That's a really good word for for the game. It's it's dark and it's depressing, but because you become because because you become invested in the game and and these these characters and you want them to survive um you kind of go into it knowing that that's difficult the game has a reputation that they're not going to survive and that kind of makes you even that that kind of meta makes you root for them even more i think um yeah that's interesting because on turn 2 i stepped out of the house in order to try and make contact with other visitors, hoping I'd maybe get a fourth survivor, because you can have up to four survivors in your house. And I thought, more hands? Good. Be great. Let's try and do that. And there's a one in ten chance when you do that that your character will just get shot and really injured. And that happened to me on turn two. And um, from a player's point of view there, I was kind of checked out of that character at that point. But then later on, they managed to get healed up and they were doing really well and recovering. And then just two days in a row, they couldn't have a cigarette. And they got depressed by that and to, depressed to the point of suicide. And just that I was like, I'd gone through this arc with them of being like straight away, checked out, not interested in them, to they're finally recovering and something really good had just happened. And they, they recovered their health and then immediately they, they, they killed themselves. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> it was a real blow to me as a player. Like it was horrible. No, no, it is, and that's something that we haven't yet mentioned. Is that the characters don't just have statistics; they also have like basic needs that you kind of have to try to fulfill because people need to feel human. They're not these aren't just workers you're managing and placing them in places. Um, I had a character who, if they didn't have coffee at a certain time, you know, by a certain time of each round, then they would become more miserable because they that was their habit. They they needed a coffee. And it really helps you understand what this person is, who this person is, I should say. 
it's worth pointing out as well that they don't have one lead. It's that it happens a random choice between up to three. So you can accommodate for it to some extent, but that day they might actually fancy not coffee, but they might have had another thing. Like they just wanted, I think that person specifically, um, I think I had her in my game as well. Um, and she wanted to make sure that she, she had such high empathy that she'd get more miserable if lots of, if the other survivors were hungry. Yeah, and that so makes sense. Coffee that day, but if you'd not accounted for the other th- thing that might upset her, then yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can get hit by one or the other. You don't know which one it's going to be, and every round is is framed by going through twenty four hours, and it it kind of, you know, that's that's what it's like. You take every day as it comes. Um, when you're going through something difficult, you do take it day by day as from a you know as a as a person. So the fact that that's how the game's structured and framed as well, and you know, in the first round, it was the coffee thing that upset her, but in the second round, it might have been, you know, the hunger thing that upset her, and that's because it's a different day, and she was feeling different that day, and I think that's a really clever piece of design, because it, it really brings the game to life. Yeah, I mean, I just want to quickly say that I mentioned earlier my character killed themselves, um, and that there, there are other ways of dying as well. You can die from being too wounded or too ill, and every single death has its own specific epilogue and some and there are sometimes multiple different ones so the epilogue will tell you to go to the book of scripts um and that will be um directly to the characters specific one and and so you get this this kind of conclusion to their story which is personal to that character and yeah it just makes you because there's a temptation in board games to strip everything down to its mechanics and when you do that and then you you kind of get a loss in this game. You get the kind of pull back to well, you know, here's here's the the human consequence of it, the non mechanical consequence. Not only removing that character from the game, you're down to survivor, but also you have to hear this little story about who they were and how their story ended. And you do get to know who the people are because there are events where they sometimes you draw up a memory, you know. And you have to resolve, depending on their emotional state, you have to resolve a memory. And you go to the book of scripts and it tells you something they remember about their past. And that's really interesting for character development. You really begin to understand their motivations and why they have these basic needs. And I thought it was interesting how it's depending on their emotional state. You you draw a memory that says if their misery level is zero to one, then look at these numbers and and you know draw roll a die and you know resolve either of those pages if their misery is two to three then you're going to need to roll a die and, and resolve these pages and depending on how they're doing from the choices that you've made or the random events in the gameplay that you've watched you you get to see how it affects them just not even if something big happens like them dying even if it's just something small, like they're, they're feeling somewhat nostalgic and thinking about their past, they, you might see exactly what kind of rotten mood they are and it reflects in what they're, they're thinking about. I don't think I've seen that in any other game, any other board game anyway, that I've played, ever. Yeah, it really, it really does stand out as pretty unique um, because it goes so full on on not just 
a mechanical tie-in to the story, but just the story and, and the story going a whole another level. I feel like you know, usually you might get random events in games that come up, and you might have a book of scripts. So thinking of things like um, Tales of Arabia, for example, which is just a, a, a chaotic nightmare of scripts. <laughs> you yeah. make choices, and you end up doing a random thing. And they feel very, very disconnected from your characters. But this one, having specific scripts for specific characters, as well as general ones for things that just happen to your survivors. But those general ones also usually then tying back to, okay, roll, and then look at one of your character's statistics and determine what happens based on their empathy or whatever. And it, it feels very organic. Um, the, way, the best way I can describe the way the game incorporates the book of scripts is kind of like if you're playing uh, for a story mode of a video game and you do a little bit of decision-making yourself and then it goes to a cutscene. That's how it feels when you're playing. That's how I felt. It reminded me of playing for a story mode of a video game where I've done my little piece of action and now it cuts to something that I wasn't expecting and that builds the interest it'll be like the, the, the so there'll be like an event and then you'll make a choice like i had um two kids come to my shelter first choice they're, they're yelling let us in one of us is going to die if you don't let us in do you let them in and that's the that's the choice you have yes or no go to a different script so i chose to let them in because i, I figure why not <laughs> see what happens um and we had a we had a bandage on hand that nobody was using so i thought maybe we can help these guys out and so we let them in Okay, so they've come in, one of them's really injured, we offer them a bandage to help them try and steal their weapons, or um, uh, I can't remember what they were, almost just turn them away or something. And just going through this branching narrative, and then so I chose to obviously bandage them up, that was, what, that was why I let them in, I, I thought I'd try and bandage them up. And we did that, and they just went off and said thank you. And all that happened then is you roll um, a, a black dice, and if it's like if they if your character's got good empathy, it's likely to increase their misery. Unfortunately, one of my characters had really low empathy, so he didn't mind that they wandered that, 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 that they didn't. I just spent a bandage for nothing. Now next turn, that specific character got injured, and I was like, we haven't got a bandage because yeah. <laughs> we just gave it away for no reason, according to him. And I could really imagine that character getting into that mindset just based on those little choices and those little, like you say, cutscenes. You know. And the cutscenes make a lot more sense than in something like Tales of Arabian Nights, for example, because it depends on what's going on. The, the cutscene you get depends on what's going on around you. It depends on what location you're in whilst you're scavenging. It depends on the, the mood of the character, potentially. It depends on the level of noise that you've made whilst you're scavenging. All of these things... Not all the time, but some of the time they can factor in. You, you can kind of see, oh, yes, that's happened because there was somebody else in the room with me that, and I couldn't see them. And, and that's why it happened, because of things that have happened previously. Everything, it feels like ev the cutscenes all make sense. Yeah, it has, um, it has a really clever system where the whenever a, a reality check happens, depending on whether it comes while you're scavenging or while you're on night duty or while you're, um, there's other ones as well. For example, just during the, the the morning in the event space, things like that. It will then tell you to draw a card from a colors deck, which is just literally a color, random color, brilliant. 
I, I like that. I don't know why I like that, but it feels nice. And then it will say, okay, now draw the next card in the relevant deck. So if you're scavenging, draw the next card in the exploration deck. While you're on a, a, a night raid, draw the next night raid card. It will say it specifically on the on the reality check card. And then reference the, the color at the bottom corner of that card. And that will take you to a script that is specifically to do with the time of day you're in. Yeah. And it, it feels like because... Because of the way you it generates what cutscene that, that it brings up for you, and because of how natural it feels, the game almost feels like that. Because let's be honest, the game subtracts agency, player agency for story. There isn't yeah. that many meaningful. Well, there are meaningful choices to make, but there aren't that many strategic choices to make. There are a lot of random events that happen. And it doesn't make clear the impact of what the choices will be a lot of the time. Yeah, so there will be an impact, like you said in your example with the bandages, but it's difficult for you to plan and to strategize around that. So one, you have you have to be okay with that. But the game, it feels like a story generating machine. You know, you put in this random data and you get a story that makes sense. And it will not be a happy story. It it will never be a happy story. But I don't know if this is a criticism for the game because obviously it's not trying to be a strategic game but from my perspective i'm used to playing you know strategy games um i did feel like at some points i wasn't playing the game i was operating the machine you know i was mm. inputting the random data to get the story and um if you are a, a more sort of thinky gamer or a more strategic gamer and you enjoy you know some other games that we covered like feast road in or, or maybe even Mage Knight, which has does have some strong emergent narrative, but not, you know, baked in narrative. I think you might struggle with with that because it did feel sometimes, you know, you have to pick up a card from this pot, pot, part of the board and then go to this part and then roll a dice and resolve this and then open up this book of scripts. It did feel a little bit cumbersome from just from a the way you handle the game. You know, it's, it's a lot to pick up and draw and shuffle and roll and then flip through the book was a little bit cumbersome and i think that's something you you should be aware of if you're thinking of of giving the game a go yeah that 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 is a absolutely a fair criticism and to some extent setting up the game in real life i mean we both played on tabletop sim but i remember it's always a bit of a pain to organize it all and get it all set up it allows you to save the game it's got like a, a system where you can kind of that's every at the end of every day you can kind of just pack it away as is and it will you'll be able to re um, reorganize it how it was so that's a lot of actual physical labor um, and that extends beyond just setup and, and packing away to every time you come from scavenging you're putting in a lot of stuff into your scavenging pool that you can't even carry home so it's it's actual physical actions that have no result no no because you're going to just put them straight back anyway yeah uh, to some extent that can be a bit frustrating and i wonder if how much of that is intentional how much gets in the way of the fun but again it's it's not really a game for fun i don't think i think it's a game to have this like we've been saying a narrative experience and it, it does that really well it, it it sacrifices fun for something else which is either a good thing or a bad thing depending on your perspective on the game the game is clearly an educational tool it reminded me of um have you read mouse the comic book Based on the Holocaust. Oh no, I keep meaning to. I really want to, really want to read that. One of the things I, I love about Mouse is it takes an event that is obviously 
so catastrophically awful that you can't really comprehend how bad it is. And it brings it down to a human level. This is how it impacts an individual person. And this is what they go through. And it reminded me of that, you know, when you when you hear on the news about countries that are affected by by war and civilians that are stuck in a in, in a civil war, maybe you hear about numbers in, in the thousands. And it's difficult to comprehend how sad that is when you hear about it on a on a macro level. One thing that the game does really well is it scales it down to the micro level. So this is how this is what this individual person has, has gone through. And you done your best to try and survive and you weren't able to. So and it and it and it does elicit a lot of feelings. Like I said, it and it does it so well by getting players invested, it gives you things to care about, it gives um it takes things away from you all the time, which triggers that loss aversion I mentioned. It's a masterpiece at what it does. But if you are coming at this from for for a normal sort of gaming experience, it is not a fun game and it is not a strategic game and it is cumbersome and fiddly to set up. So um, I just think it's worth knowing that, but um, it's a masterpiece of what it does. See, that's really interesting saying it's not a fun game. We've both been saying that. Um, I, obviously, it does give this kind of glimpse into a real situation and gives you those kind of gut punches of reality. It keep, The card being called reality impact, it, you know, it, it, exactly what the scripts are. But I wonder to what extent, and I couldn't work this out for how I feel about it, but I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. To what extent do you think that the the game is a form of escapism in the exact same way as things like, because obviously it's not uh, set necessarily in a fantasy world, but it's not also set in a specific real location, but to the same ex- in, in the same way that things like um, any sort of dark horror, like Cthulhu and, and, and things like that, try and give you this sort of ghoulish horror. I wonder to what extent you felt it, man, it, 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 it does that or avoids doing that. Yeah, I think it avoids it because with those kind of horror games, there's there's different convent. It doesn't touch any of the conventions of horror, other than that it involves horrible things happening. It doesn't mm. have any of the normal what you would associate with horror in terms of graphic design or artwork, or in my opinion, there's there's no kind of horror can be kind of campy and oh no, I'm being chased by a tentacle monster and it's as as horrible and gross as that sound. It's kind of fun because it's horrible and gross. This look when I found a, a child and had to name it and look after it, that is very different to what those kind of Arkham games or other horror games are trying to achieve. So it felt very different. Um, in terms of escapism, um, I don't think it offers any kind of real escapism other than the fact that when you go into the game, you kind of, like I said earlier, you have that meta of knowing it's difficult to win. So the only thing that I kind of motivated me to keep going and playing is to try and well let's see if I can help these guys survive and you end up rooting for them and sometimes it does you know there are glimpses of it becoming fun when a couple of good things happen in a row and you kind of think yes I'm I might be able to 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 make it that that is the only kind of uh, fun quote-unquote fun aspect we're probably gonna probably people are probably 
we're probably going to get a reaction from people saying, I love the Sword Mine. I think it's really fun. You guys are so wrong. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I have to be honest. Um, and that, that's what I think. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, just going off that, it made me realise that there is no real catharsis at all. You get endings, you get closure, but you never get that same sort of thing you get with All Good Horror, which is reaching a, a point uh, where things are all happening and it gets exciting and explosive and you get that release, that tension release. It's just tension and then misery. It's just building up. It, it, it's much more of a kind of almost artistic piece. You know, it, it builds up and builds up and you get tense and you go through a kind of drama. And I think when bad things happen, the only response I really had is to kind of throw my hands up and want to give up and check out and, and frame it as kind of, well, it'll be over soon now anyway. And and, and, that, and I think that's a very human reaction. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way, where you, you just sort of check out and just want to, well, now I just want them to die so that the game can be over because I know I'm not going to win. And I, I, I think, but then you get a little glimmer of hope, like something good happens and you go, well, actually now I really want this character to survive. I had two characters die and one left. And I realized actually now they're dead. Maybe he can go it alone and do it. And he found a friend came, a visitor came and I was reinvested. But then, then, then it happened again and they both died, but it didn't ever feel like there was a release of tension. It just felt dismal. And that's probably what I, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say, but, um, yeah, you've 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 absolutely nailed it. So thank you, thank you for finding that for me because I was really struggling to put that into words. But yeah, that it feels different to the to the traditional horror type games because it isn't one, you know. And one of the reasons is because players go through that cycle of tension and release with horror. With this, there's just tension and you feel bad, and then tension, and then please don't feel worse. Oh, I do feel worse. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of you know the journey I had with it, and again, take my opinion with a pinch of salt. It is my it was my first time playing the game, but I definitely felt like the game was intended to be an educational tool to to show players this is this is what real people go through. This could easily be a real world setting. These are real life consequences, and for for doing that, it was it's it's, it's excellent at doing that. I'm really looking forward to hearing back from people if anyone's succeeded at the game, because neither of us obviously have succeeded at the game. I wonder if you do ever achieve that sense of catharsis or whether you look back and go, because I don't think there's any way to succeed without something horrible happening, either to your survivors or at least in the events around you. And and whether you can, can look back and be like, we did it, we made it, and and you get that that feeling, or and then it moves more into a fun thing, or, or whether you, you look back and just go, we did it, but at what cost, you know? Um, I wonder I wonder how that feels. Um, you'll have to let us know. Yeah, and one of the things that I was wondering as well is once I finished it, I felt like, like I said, it's not really a game that I didn't, at some points I didn't even, I didn't really feel like I was playing. I felt like I was operating the storytelling machine. And I felt like it was a game that had to be experienced rather than, than played. So for the people that do play the game often and enjoy it and come back, keep coming back to it, yeah, where where is the um, is it because of the challenge? Because of how challenging the game is, you wanna uh, you want that sense of accomplishment. You want to beat it. What is it that brings you back more than because like Scruffy, you've played it a few times. What is it that brings you back to the game? Because I certainly felt like after one play, I feel like okay, I feel like I've experienced the game. I've got what the designers wanted me to get out of it. 
I don't feel like I need to go back and see all the other miserable stories that I haven't <laughs> seen yet. Um, what is it that made you want to play it more than more than once and keep coming back to it? So I've um, I've played it this that, this time playing it was only my third time, and the reason for that is I think you can't really play it in short succession because you'll get the same scripts eventually. And I noticed in the second playthrough I did, I hit a few of the same scripts, and that kind of breaks the immersion to some extent for me. This time playing through, obviously, I, I had forgotten all the scripts that I'd hit previously, and I don't know if I hit any similar ones. But it felt... If, if I remember feeling similarly in the other games I've played. It was nice to feel like I got a little bit further, and I think going forward, I might end up playing it again, but only after... A, a, a lot of time has passed and I think it's the sort of thing that will be because uh, uh, I own a physical copy of the game so it's going to be a companion throughout the rest of my life and maybe one one year I'll complete it maybe just sort of a once a year game that might be a way to to view it as a once a year experience where you have another crack at this war of mine and see if you can do it that's interesting Can we, um, we open out a bit um, from this war of mine now we've uh, we've obviously covered that quite a lot yeah, so the, the, the topic, as we said at the beginning of the uh, episode, the topic is games that aim to educate on difficult subjects um, like war, uh, political issues, and social issues. And just very broadly, before we dive into that, Scruffy, how do you feel about games looking to teach a lesson or educate in that context? Do you think it's, very broadly, first of all, do you think it's they're a good tool for that, or how do you feel about that? So this this has really brought up, doing the research for this episode and thinking about this this topic, it's really brought up an issue for me with um, with board games and, and, and thrown a kind of spotlight on the choice of theme in board games. And I feel like there are kind of two types of games with problematic themes. You have ones that use the theme and link it with the tone of the game and use it to make an actual meaningful statement about social issues like this war of mine, and unpack the issue, or even just start as a discussion point for it, or, or even just put, draw draw light to, to a social issue. And I think that's a really good reason to use a problematic theme in the game. And then there's ones that just seem to have the theme with no real meaningful reference, and sometimes not even mechanical tie-ins. So it doesn't even make sense mechanically linked with the game it's just that they are painted with a problematic theme and i i've kind of started to ask myself well, why why do designers choose to do that then because that's not just something that happens um the example that kind of sprung to mind for this was things like puerto rico where you take the role of a, a kind of colonial uh, plantation owner and I and I and I and for the rest of the game, it's not brought up or referenced or tied into the mechanics. I mean, you could just as easily be a gardener with, you know, the, the different types of crops in your garden, and it would mechanically work the same. The game would function the same. So why have they chosen that theme? I, I wonder where you are with all that. It's definitely an interesting topic, and um, board games are unusual in in that way. There aren't video games set in, you know, colonial times that just ignore the fact that that is a setting. But there are many board games that do that. And I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe it's something that was okay 
but it's not it's not a um you mentioned Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a relatively older game. It's still a modern game, obviously. But it's um it's it's a few years old, but it's still going on. I mean, one of the most popular games that can be played solo of 2019 was Alexander Fister's Maracaibo, which is about colonizing in the Caribbean. And again, it's it's not something that is important in the game. The theme is not important. So it seems unusual that they that they use that. Um, you mentioned there were two games, or two different types of games with problematic themes. One, like this War of Mine, where they heavily lean into that to to make a statement on, you know, how maybe the the uh, the player should feel about that. And and then the other, which is what we've just been speaking about. I would also say that there is a third kind of game, which is where the theme, the problematic theme, is very important and done very accurately. But there's no kind of emotional level, and um, when I say those, I mean like the history games, the historical games, you know, like the um, the GMT war games, you know, set in, like for example, uh, there's a solo, uh, well, it's not just solo, but it's it is a game you can be played solo, which is Labyrinth: A War on Terror, and it's set in. Well, set in in now, <laughs> you know there are events that happen in that game that have happened within our lifetime. As as a player, you you have to go through them, but it's not done for for the same reason that the war of mine is. It's just it's just there, um, and I think those are very interesting as well because although they might not be emotive, people who play those games certainly have a lot more respect and understanding of the events that occurred than people who play, for example. Maracaibo, you know, people who play Labyrinth for War and Terror will have a better understanding of the events that happened than people who play Maracaibo would when it comes to colonizing in the Caribbean, assuming that, that those games are their only source of knowledge for those subjects. Yeah, I mean, I think with those games, the, the only experience I've had was uh, with a war game like that was uh, Silent Victory. Yeah. So in so in Silent Victory, you play uh, in a submarine in World War Two, and the, I think that the reason the theme works to some extent in that game is because the tone of the game is almost like a historical text. I'm not sure how I feel about war games at the moment. I'm very new to the, the genre, and I, I'm sure there might be some problematic titles out there. Um, it felt really quite strange when I played that, having... Um, because your, your goal is to go and sink ships and having the names of the ships you encounter that you're aiming to sink, the actual names of ships that sank in the war, felt pretty dark. I, I don't really know how I feel about that because at least, at very least, they, uh, to some extent, educate. I learned some things about um, the war and the way it was done that I didn't know before. But the fact that they don't really take an emotive stance on it I'm not sure how I feel about that, that you're allowed to kind of engage with it and just dispassionately roll the dice and celebrate every time you sink sink uh, however many tons of ships and then your success is based on how many tons you sink. I really don't know how I feel. I think that's pretty bad. It's pretty nasty, but maybe, uh, I, maybe I'm I, Well, if that's your opinion. So you obviously you're fully entitled to it, but I do personally 
I know how I stand. I don't think it's wrong at all. I think it's fine. Um, I think games are a really safe way to look at, you know, history like that. It's going back to to Labyrinth. I think it, it would be really interesting to get a better understanding of the events and the motivations that people would have had in that time by exploring those mechanisms and by doing it in a way that is not emotive. It also makes it replayable. And with repeated plays comes better education of the subject matter because, you, like you said, it feels like it's factual, even though it may not be entirely historically accurate. It is somewhat handled with, well, it's definitely handled with greater care than than those other sort of Euro-style games that we were talking about that, um, that don't pay any attention to the theme whatsoever. If you were to play through... Mombasa, for example, has an extremely problematic theme, and it's not explored in any meaningful way whatsoever. Where and then if you compare that to playing a a war game, at the very least, with repeated plays, you may become interested in subject matter and look more into it. And I think in the the Golden Circle is a perfect setting for that type of exploration of a theme, in my opinion. I can totally see where you're coming from, and I, I couldn't agree more that games like Mombasa or Puerto Rico, to me, I've, I've really started to come around on the idea of thinking that uh, at worst they're for people who want to experience a, a power fantasy as a slave owner or something like that, or, but even giving them the benefit of the doubt. There and just saying that well, it's an interesting theme. I think that if it's not related to the mechanics, then or the narrative, then it's it's just lazy design. It's a bad choice. I think that's where I stand with that. With regards to the war games, I I just I, the 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 worry for me with the specific example I played was how it glorified to some extent the uh, actions of the naval. Uh, of the of the submarine sinking however many tons and, and and the awards you get the things you're motivated by are medals of war and at no point did it kind of i mean obviously for me playing it already going in with the predisposition that i have on thinking how war is is, is horrible and, and nasty and abhorrent i i was able to kind of take a, a meta step to that and i i get that that's a lot of the player's responsibility and and, and i'm sure most players would do that but it it just feels like if that's not somehow mechanically or narratively explicit in the game, it's kind of giving free reign to just be like, yeah, let's just enjoy the... And I know I sound like a, a, a sort of, <laughs> I don't know, um, what the non-violent equivalent of a prude would be. But it, it yeah, it, it, it did kind of give me pause to think when it was mentioning real actual names of things but maybe that was maybe that was the intention and maybe i'm not giving enough credit i don't know well let's say when we're not talking about silent victory at the moment so let's just say you really enjoyed the game and you came back and you played it again and you learned some other ship names and you decide to look them up at the very least it gets you interested in history um i don't think the games are there to uh they have a different objective to this war of mine where it is try to try and make you take a stance. I think it's more to try and get you... Well, first of all, it's to, it's to be an interesting game. But the secondary objective of historical games is to be interesting for people who are fans of history. And what you oft, what I often see is that people who play 
war games are more respectful of of those that have lost their lives in war than than probably the average average person who doesn't take an interest in in these kind of games so it i think they obviously do some good and i think um i like first of all i i like them so there's that there's that but maybe bias that i have but um yeah, I think I think there are really safe space for you to look at look at your history, and I think um, when you said, "Oh, you know, I, it, it glorifies this," or you know, it glorifies that, or you, that's your motivation you have as a player. I think that's interesting that you can see how quickly you know wars can you know motivate you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. Like talking about it from a non a non uh, solo experience. Uh, I remember the first time I played. Twilight Imperium and I was sat next to you, yourself Scruffy and I remember we had this kind of arms race along our sort of neutral border that we <laughs> agreed upon and and I felt like I was I really got an idea of how it must feel to lead a big army and it didn't feel very good <laughs> it felt scary <laughs> and um, I think I think yeah games are a perfectly safe area for you to explore these type of things and um yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a problem at all. So I think maybe maybe we'll have to agree to disagree on on that one. But oh no, I'm not. I'm not sure where I stand. Is is definitely the thing. I think I need to play a lot more of them, and I need to, you know, do a bit more soul searching on it. I, I really don't know. Um, it's it's think... not. For, it's not for everything, everyone. But I do think you said there were two different types of games. I think there are three. There are the yeah. games where the the theme is is there to educate you on a on a social side of it. There are games where it takes a problematic theme it's there to educate the history um, side of yeah, it. I think it definitely, to some extent, I think falls into the the broad category I was saying about the ones where they link the tone to unpack the social issue. I think, you know, the, the, the argument there is that they're at least making the historical references to it and saying, you know, this is the specifics. Um, that is, in, in a lot of ways, unpacking the the issue. It's at least shining a light on what happened. And, and, and yeah, I've got to give them credit for that. They definitely uh, are cut above, like we say, games that, that, that just have the theme with no reference to it. No, I mean, sometimes it's 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 just bizarre that they have those those themes in the game. Yeah, yeah. And and we're not condemning people who play the games. I also um, really enjoy. I mentioned Mombasa. It's actually in my top 30 games of all time. I really love the mechanisms. I think it's really interesting gameplay. Um, so absolutely not being preachy here in any way. And I hope it hasn't come across that way. We're just having, we're just trying to have a discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wish it was a, a different theme. Like, I don't know. I mean, the mechanics in Mombasa are great. One of my all-time favorite mechanics. I love I love how you go up the different tracks and how you move on the different the boards and stuff. But I, I just wish it was... <laughs> not slavery yeah and how do you feel about um so i mentioned earlier um <laughs> i said very broadly do you think games are a good way to explore these themes and to you know help educate people on social issues rather than just being fun and obviously generate all this discussion but i don't think um i don't think i got an answer how do you feel about games as an educational tool for these kinds of issues do you think it is a good you know, do, do you think that it can be done in a in a, a tasteful and and effective way? Yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you use these themes in your game, then it's kind of beholden to you to make them 
an educational thing and that that, that, that is absolutely a uh, I mean any form of expression is, is 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 great you should you should totally do it yeah absolutely that is is my answer do you think it is possible to cross the cross a line where um no matter how educational you're trying to be it's just not okay to make a game about that subject do you think there is a line that can be crossed and if so where where would you draw it i i don't think i'm qualified to draw it as a white man really but um i think it's all about just trying to avoid appropriation i guess isn't it and and that's why i think where i think games like uh, puerto rico and and, and mombasa and stuff fall down is that they they use the theme they, they almost they, they kind of exploit the theme without ever really acknowledging that they're using that theme and it, it just it feels very problematic to me so i guess the line would be a lack of self-awareness right Mm. But um, as we've already said, that that wouldn't stop us from playing those games. So why do you think that is? Do you think the fact that there's been so much time passed since those events that it makes it kind of not not okay, but um, easier to swallow because it's uh, it's not in our lifetime. It's not even in our grandparents' lifetime, for example. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like the effects from games like this are still very much in the present. And I feel like games that deal with uh, slavery that are more along the ancient era and things like games in ancient Rome and stuff are much less problematic because the effects aren't as readily impactful. But there's so few generations between the slavery represented in in, in more modern, in, in those more modern examples, that I feel like I obviously am able to just kind of ignore the theme and put it to one side and engage with the game and the mechanics. But I can quite see how other people might not be able to, especially those who have been directly impacted by the horrors of slavery and and, and the effects it's still having in terms of the wealth divide and all the other numerous social issues it's caused. I mean, do you you feel the same way or? I guess I do. Yeah, I guess I do. Um... It's the same. It was a different time, and oh well, slavery was okay then, but we don't have slavery anymore. It's I feel like really, really a, a weak source thing to say. Like the effects are still absolutely prevalent. You know, I mean, you have to look at what's going on at the moment. We're currently, yeah, it's the twelfth of June today, and we've got all this, all this stuff happening, uh, which I'm sure will still be going on when this podcast comes out. It's hugely relevant. Of course, it is. Okay. Um. All right. I think that's. I think that's really interesting. So final thoughts on this war of mine. Would you recommend the game? Yeah, yes. But only if you're wanting to make yourself miserable about war and how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't recommend this war of mine just for the fact that although it executes what it's trying to achieve really, really, really well. But um, in order to do that, it is quite tedious to flick through all the cards and pages and apart from some key points in the game where the story really came to life largely I was just a little bit bored so I probably wouldn't recommend this war of mine it is obviously based on a video game so maybe it's worth playing that instead but um yeah please please don't hate me and do take my opinions with a pinch of salt it was my first and only time playing the game I think um, I think that's enough on on games that aim to educate and games that handle problematic themes. Thank you for sticking with us. Um, 
because we did touch on some some difficult issues there and um everything we said obviously was our own opinions i'm sure we brought up lots of interesting topics so if you do want to um if you do want to write in about it you absolutely can um and i think that's a good segue into into the portion of the show where we talk about uh the responses we got and uh, people who've written to us from the last episode so as always scruffy hasn't seen these I handle the correspondence, and we're going to go through those now. So first of all, um, in response to episode three, which was about Mage Night, we um, heard from a chap called Dan. Uh, So Dan wrote in a number of different things. So first of all, he says, um, hey, guys, really enjoying the show. Have have a couple of thoughts after listening to episode three. Um, One is he needs to play Mage Night again. (laughs) Two is... Monopoly can be fun. So I don't know if you remember, but I did actually bring up Monopoly in when I was talking about house rules. But moving on, carrying on with what he said. Three, we, we are, the question we asked last week was, what's the most immersive solo experience you've had? So he said in response to last week's question, he actually finds the Fallout board game to be quite immersive and it actually works best as a solo game, despite it being a multiplayer game. And this is due to the nature of the IP it's based on, as it becomes more about you uh, playing through the story than having weird disjointed interactions with with other players. So um, that's what Dan said. So first of all, Dan, thank you for writing. We really appreciate that. But uh, how do you how do you feel about that, Scruffy? Yeah, it's really awesome. I mean, I played um, Fallout multiplayer. Um, but I've never played it solo. I, 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 I can imagine it would absolutely work a lot better solo because the way it works in multiplayer, isn't it, that you kind of come across fragments of story and then other players carry on the story sometimes if, if they randomly draw the cards that you put into the deck and it just feels a bit weird. But I can totally see how it would work better solo. Also, the um, the way you kind of compete for the reputation of the factions just felt kind of weird when I played it multiplayer. It didn't seem to make much sense. Uh, maybe that was just my experience, but I, I absolutely can totally see how it would translate much better to a sort of immersive storytelling solo experience so i'll have to have to check that out for sure and i've not played uh fallout the board game um so i don't really have much to say on that one dan but in relation to your first point um yes you should play mage night again <laughs> it's yeah, absolutely awesome. totally agree um whilst we are on that subject um last time we spoke about the mage night tournament we said about how we would get on we were on, we would just finish round two and we said how we uh, we were about to play round three and we would let people know how we got on. So there's actually been two rounds since the last recording. So let's do it bit by bit. First of all, Scruffy, how did you get on in, in round three? So I made it through round three and got into round four. Uh, it was it was quite a hard game. It was um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a tricky one. But then in round four, which was the first time ever playing with the Megatropolis rules, I... Uh, got eliminated because I missed a rule when I was attacking the uh, first city. Somebody pointed it out, and so I've dropped out of that one. But I, I was when I actually did the playthrough, I managed to one-shot the Megatropolis, which made me very, very happy. First time experiencing one, and I took it out in one one foul blow, which felt really good. Uh, nice. I used, used to spell Earthquake with a bunch of uh, siege attack and stuff. It, it was very, it was very fun. Earthquake is is really, really, really useful for a um for a city assault so i can imagine that that worked out pretty well for you so um well done on on beating it but uh obviously bad luck for dropping out the tournament 
Um, for me, so um, obviously, yeah, I'd also beat round three. So um, round three was city level 11, which is the highest you can go up to before you have to start um, doing the Megatropolis rules. So, um, yeah, that was my first time going that high. I also managed to one-shot the level 11 city. Uh, with regards to round four, I have just started round four. I finished uh, the first day. I'm starting the first night, which is the second round, second of, of six rounds. Um, and the game is still on the dining table. <laughs> Scruffy uh, messaged me and said, hey, let's let's do a recording now. And I said, yeah, sure, no, no problem. So I, uh, I've left Mage Knight on the table. Um, it has to be finished tonight. That's deadline. So you'll know by next next episode if i've if i've made it into round five but i'll be honest things aren't looking good it's been a tough start uh, did we have any other correspondence yes we did so we also had someone reach out this person's name is kendall now kendall actually will be joining us for the next episode kendall we actually know and he is a um game designer um so we're going to be talking about his game in the next episode so if you have any questions about what he's written in Feel free to respond because I'll make him <laughs> I'll make him answer for you. But yeah, Kendall writes in saying, "Great job on the show, guys. Good job so far." Right. The crux of the email is about difficulty in solo games, which is what we covered in episode two. And he said that inherently, by design, solo games are either too difficult or too easy, which is huh. I think quite controversial. But he goes on to explain. He says, because like with analog gaming, you can't really do complex simulation and reaction to your actions. It mostly relies on randomness for its unpredictability. And if that randomness is really low, like in Caverna, which he used that example because we briefly spoke about in episode two, says then the game is a neat puzzle. It can be just the right amount of challenge until you figure out the optimal strategy. Then once you've got an optimal strategy, you can't lose because there's no unpredictability or challenge to it. He goes on to say most solo and co-op games are a lot more unpredictable, but it's through randomness. For example, Atoma decks or in Pandemic, for example, the Infection deck. And that means there's more replay, replay value, often because it's a new challenge each time. But when you're good enough and making the optimal, close to optimal moves every time, you either always win because the game can't react to your new strategy or you lose because of the level of randomness. And if you're not able to beat the game, even when you know all the optimal moves because of that level of randomness, then the game is inherently too hard because you can lose even when you've made all of the correct decisions. That's a lot to digest there. What do you think about that? That's really interesting. The idea of difficulty in solo game is, is fascinating to me. Uh, I think, this War of Mine is a great example of a game that is what I guess Kendall would call too hard, that you can play completely optimally and, I mean, unless you know what all the scripts are and, and you know what all the outcomes are, then I suppose it would become too easy. But if it, if it, if you don't, you can just get horrible scripts that absolutely destroy your, your survivors and your chances of, of winning the game. But obviously that works in this War of Mine, a game where it's not designed that the aim is necessarily to win, but more to experience the story. In games like Mage Knight, for example, um, I think the, uh, the, the concept of winning is important, but I think because it has a score thing, 
it's kind of almost infinitely replayable and the randomness adds enough to it that it really for me strikes that difficulty line of being too easy or too hard right in a really nice spot and we'll have to definitely go go through it in real detail i think in a in another episode where we can talk about randomness and really get into it but yeah absolutely definitely interesting food for thought how do you feel what, what do you think um in short uh he's wrong <laughs> i don't think just because you can lose by randomness it means the game is too hard that doesn't right. mean the game is too hard because that random event could have just as easily in most cases been something that helps you rather than something that help, makes you lose. I don't think that means the game is too hard. I think that means it's interesting, different every time. I mean, the thing with that is that random event isn't something you have agency over. So I guess what Kendall's saying is that if games are meant to be a test of your skill as a player and your choices, and randomness can wreck you, then the difficulty level is too much because it... it, it moves away from being about skill and into a, a, a difficulty based on luck, which is not something you have control over, and therefore it's not just too hard, but actually almost impossible. I suppose. But the reason that that doesn't work in, in reality is because often games with that level of randomness becomes very difficult to know what the optimal move is. So in Kendall's email, he says you could make all the optimal or close to optimal moves and still lose. In those kind of games, if it's a random event, you rarely have much information on this. You don't know what the optimal move is. So it's kind of impossible to say, well, I made all the optimal choices and I still lost because it's very difficult to know what that, that is. Pandemic is a specific example. It gives you a really lovely level of information. I actually I really like Pandemic as a solo experience. I do think it becomes easier as a solo game because you're able to to make rationale for both characters or, or for three characters or however many you're playing. But um, Pandemic actually is random, but because of the way the uh, infections work, uh, sorry, the um, epidemic cards work, is that uh, you take the cards that you've already drawn from the infection deck and you put them back on top. So although that makes the game harder because the randomness is going to become more effective because it's going to hit the same cities. You also gain more knowledge of the random events that are about to happen. So often often the game puts you in difficult positions where it's kind of impossible to know what the optimal move is. And although Kendall might say that means I'm right and the game is too difficult, I think that is that's a really lovely way of building the tension. And I think it's a tool that means the game is replayable and interesting and i've never finished a game of pandemic and gone why well, lost because of this random event and that means it's just too hard i've never felt that way so maybe he might be correct in principle but um i think in in i think a game being too easy or too hard is only a, a bad thing when it makes you feel like the game is too easy or too hard and I don't know. He used Pandemic as a specific example. I've never felt that way either way. My instinct is to say I understand. It's a really interesting point, but uh, yeah, I don't think all it's. I don't think all solo games are inherently too easy or too hard. I think that's um too broad. Uh, that's too broad a brush to stroke with, in my opinion. You're saying that the um, the randomness and the luck, to some extent, is a factor in the decision that you make, and yeah. in order. To- 
the optimal move, you can't ignore that you might draw a random card that eliminates a character or I mean it's very rare that you'll get a, a random card that says you lose the game. That would be a game that would be too hard. But in practice most games don't have that card. They have a card that says, Oh, this is a really bad random card and you lose X, whatever it might be, but you should, as a experienced player of that game, be able to anticipate for that. For example, in Pandemic, you might draw the card that gives you the the the, the epidemic explosion or whatever, and you, as the as the player, should be responsible for that. I think Pandemic's an interesting example because you have the kind of heads up about what the randomness might be, so it really makes that a part of the, of the factor. And I think the best games are ones that give you that kind of the tools to anticipate that randomness, whereas ones where it is just literally a card draw, especially if you haven't played the game before and you don't know what that card can be, there's no way to anticipate that. So you can't make the optimal move because you yeah. can't. Yeah, and, and, and Pandemic is, to expand on it even, even further, let's let's create a specific example where um, an epidemic happens, you, you put the cards back on top and it creates a, an outbreak. And you can go, well, there was no way I could have could have i could have gone there i i could have got to it in time my character was too far away you would have chosen to move your character there you know i guess in in what kendall's saying is if you had infinite time to play the game you would get good enough where it would be too easy or it's too random that even if you were that good you could still lose and then by its very definition it's too hard i don't i think that level of mastery that you would have to assume someone has to get to that point is so high that it's almost even if you are right even if Kendall was right it's not very important yeah yeah I think I agree with that and if you want to know more about um how we feel about difficulty in board games then check out episode one where we specifically cover that topic and I think in the future we'll have to go in go into randomness in a lot more detail and how it affects difficulty and stuff yeah it's a really interesting topic just a small correction there though it was episode two where we spoke about difficulty in solo games off the back of that wonderful feedback the question for this week is do you agree with kendall's hypothesis that games are either too easy or too hard um too easy because they are subject to mastery and low in randomness or too difficult because they are high in randomness and impossible to therefore master let us know your thoughts it's obviously a really interesting topic and um I'm sure it's going to provoke some strong responses. And like you said, he will be on the next episode talking about his game. So we'd love to uh, we'd love to get your response to that. Yeah, and feel free to, as always, contact us with any other responses, questions, um, comments, anything at all. And we will do our best to get that read out in the next episode. How can they contact us, Norm? So, yeah, we are contactable on Facebook. Uh, the links to our Facebook page are in our show notes. We're also contactable by Instagram. We are at Always Play One Podcast. You can also email us. Our email address is alwaysplayeronepodcast at gmail.com. And this is one of my favorite parts of the show. We always love hearing from you guys. So don't be afraid to write in. You guys really make the show what it is. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.